Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Book of Romans, Fred Ligon, lead pastor of Williamsburg Christian Church, reminds us that in Christ, we have nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to fear, so that we can have freedom to love our Lord, our God, and to love our neighbor as we're called to. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and join us as we continue to see how God's righteousness for the unrighteous is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans has been called for a couple of hundred years, it's been called the Magna Carta of Christianity because everybody assumes that this is probably Paul's masterpiece book. So people have said that Paul practically said everything he knew to say in this book. And it makes sense because this book is called what? Romans, right? And, and what was and Romans is named after a people who live in? And in Paul's day, what was the center of world power? So if Paul's going to do anything to talk about Jesus and to talk about what it means, he's going to talk about it in every way, writing to a people who live in the center of world power. So Paul has something to say, and he has a lot to say, and it'd do us well to listen. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to pick up in a context later. I'm going to try and establish the context around it. But he says, so what are we saying? Are we better off? Not at all. We have already stated the charge. Both Jews and Greeks are all under, everybody say it with me, the power of sin. The word power is reign or dominion of sin. Like that's what it's pointing to, the power of sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. Y'all feel encouraged already? There is no one who understands. Y'all feeling good? There is no one who looks for God. Well, come on, Paul. They, are, they all turned away. They've become worthless together. Well, come on, Paul. They have become worthless together. They, there is no one who shows kindness. I mean, not, there is not even one. Now, what's he doing? You see that little parentheses comment? He's quoting Psalms as he writes Romans. Keep that in mind. Their throat is a grave that has been opened. They are deceitful with their tongues, and the poison of vipers is under their lips. I think Paul's offensive. I think Paul would be kicked out of some churches he tried to preach this sermon, right? All of a sudden, there's an emergency elders meeting being called. He's quoting Psalm 5. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. He quotes Psalm 10. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and they don't know the way of peace. He quotes Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God in their view of the world. He quotes Psalm 36. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law in order to shut every mouth and make it so the whole world has the answer to God. It follows that no human being will be treated as righteous in his presence by doing what the law says because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now, I need y'all to know, I knew exactly what Hunter thought of me when he gave me this text this morning. He's like, Fred, can you, can, you, can you handle this text for us this morning? Paul talks a lot about the law of Moses. He talks a lot about the law, and in this verse, 11 verses, he quotes the law. He quotes the Hebrew Scriptures five times in 11 verses in the third chapter of Romans. And it would do us well, since this whole thing's about the law, to try at least understand what he means when he says the law. Everybody say the law. The law. 
That's what he's talking about. And a lot of times when we hear about the law, we think about the law as having to do with our inability to save ourselves. That's usually how we frame up the law. It's about behavior and not being good enough, holy enough, righteous enough to come into the presence of God to share in the life of God. That's what we usually mean. And, and when that becomes the primary understanding of the law of the Bible, when the, the words the law, then a lot of times if we're not careful, the Bible, especially the Hebrew Scriptures, becomes more about a book of morals and rules. And then this makes sense to us because if we know our Bibles, then we know that the, that the law is not made up of ten commandments. The law is made up of how many commandments? Anybody know? Yeah, like 613, 611, depends on, who, depends on which rabbi you're listening to. But between 611 and 613, that's a lot. No wonder why we can't get it right. 611 laws, 613 laws, we may even find ourselves asking the question that the disciples asked Jesus when Jesus said, it's, it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to get to heaven. What do the disciples say? Well, then who can be saved? We hear Paul write this and we go, well, who can be saved? And then we hear Jesus quote a law, being asked by a law expert, what's the most important command in the law? And of all the 611, Jesus says what? To love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is quoting the Shema. And then he quotes Leviticus and says what? And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So if Jesus says that all the law and the prophets hang on loving God, loving neighbor, and then Paul says we can't do jack to keep the law right, then Paul is essentially saying we have a real big problem with love. We have a real big problem with understanding what it means to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and our strength. We have a really big problem with what it means to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And then we hear Jesus say something like what he did in Matthew 5, 17, when he says I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I say to you very seriously that as long as heaven and earth exist, as long as heaven and earth exist, I'm going to say that again, as long as heaven and earth exist, that not, not even the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a pen will be erased from the law until everything there becomes a reality. So Paul's saying the law condemns us, or is that really what he's saying? And then Jesus says, well, but love fulfills the law, and that the law is a revelation of love. And then Paul says, but there's nothing we can do to get it right, because the law shows us that we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't come into life with God by keeping the law. But yet Paul quotes the law in the book of Romans. Do you know how many times? 83 times. So the man who says the law condemns us is the man who quotes the law 83 times. Matter of fact, Paul quotes the law in almost all of his writings almost 183 times. Paul has a high view of the law. He was formed by the law because when he's talking about the law, he's talking about Torah. He's talking about the law of Moses. Paul was formed by the law. Paul was shaped by the law. Paul knew the law. He understood the law as making sense to him because it showed him and his people what it means to live when Yahweh is king. And he knew his story. See, unlike a lot of us Christians today, Paul knew his story. And it helped him make sense of the world. 
And he knew the story of Exodus. He knew how a few months later, after 10 plagues and a miraculous walk across dry ground through the Red Sea, freed the Hebrew people. He knew how Moses had spent time on, on a mountain with God called Sinai, where he was given the law for his people. He knew that they needed a law because the people of Yahweh had never experienced the law. The only law that the people of Yahweh knew was the law of Pharaoh. And what was that law about? Enslavement. So he knew for 400 years, people didn't know what it meant to live under law. They had no concept or imagination for judges and priests and prophets and, and, and a way of life that was governed by God. All they knew was a way of enslavement that was governed by Pharaoh. And so on the Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the law. And this law that God gave Moses is the law that Paul is talking about. So if we're going to understand what Paul is talking about, it would be helpful to remember what the law is. And so the law comes out to what we like to call Ten Commandments, right? Then God spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Number one, do not have other gods before me. Number two, do not make an idol for yourself. And he goes on and talks about that, and he says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love. Everybody say faithful love. To a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Are your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife as male or female slave, as ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We call this the what? The Ten Commandments. This is like the foundation of the thing that Paul just got through talking about in Romans 3. It's the foundation of the law. And these commands offer God's people a way of life that nurtured God's love, that nurtures their love for God and their love for one another. That's what these were about. Because I want you to notice something. The first three laws here are about God and humanity. Have you noticed? It's about God's covenantal love. It's about God and humanity. But the last bunch of laws is about neighbor and neighbor. Have you noticed that? What this is doing is, is God's trying to give His people an understanding as to what it means to live in relationship with God and what it means to live in relationship with one another. So Jesus then said, all the law and the prophets, hang on, loving God and what? Loving your neighbor. So in how you read the words, the law and the law of Moses, it's all going to boil down to the idea that we're to love God with all we have, and we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And Paul now lives in the center of world power. Paul himself used to be a terrorist. Y'all remember that, right? He used to kill Christians in the name of his political and religious ideology. And he knows if there's one thing we struggle with in this world, it's loving God with all we have. Sometimes we only love God on the weekends. Sometimes we only love God when the plane's going down. Everybody loves God when the plane's going down, right? God save me. Love you, God. Like, if there's any, right? We only love God. We usually love God when we have needs. Paul knows we struggle with this. Hard to love God when we're successful. Hard to love God when everything's going on. I mean, we love God, but you know what I'm saying. And that's how we say it. 
It's like any time I've done counseling, I would say, hey, does your wife know that you love her? Yeah, you know, she knows I love her. When's the last time you said it? I mean, she knows I love her. No, but when is the last time you said, I love you? I mean, she knows I love her. Okay? God knows I love him. When's the last time you obeyed him? I mean, God knows I love him. When's the last time he was Lord of your life? God knows I love him. Everybody wants Jesus as Savior. Not a lot of people want him as Lord. Paul knows we struggle with this. Paul knows we're not going to check it off right and get it right and be sharing in the life of God forever because we kept it right. And then there's love your neighbor. And that's problematic. I don't know if you met mine. Actually, mine are good. <laughs> if you're listening, neighbors, y'all are good. <laughs> right? <laughs> we struggle to love neighbor. But the standard is we struggle to love neighbor as we love ourselves. Mm. Now, I can love my neighbor, but not necessarily in the same way I love me. Paul knows we struggle with that. Paul knows we want to dislike our neighbor, sometimes hate our neighbor, sometimes even kill our neighbor, because when the Bible talks about neighbor, it's not talking about the person who shares my address or my street or my zip code. It's talking about the person in proximity to me. It's talking about my fellow human being who's loved by God in the same way I am, made in the image of God in the same way I am. And Paul just knows. He just knows. We struggle with this. And so if it comes down to being saved by the way we love God and love neighbor, well, it's just not happening. So Paul, in his text, and pardon my language, basically writes in Romans 3, we're all screwed, right? We're all up a creek because we can't, we can't do this law. Matter of fact, the only thing the law has actually revealed is our inability to live into the law because there's love your neighbors yourself. Paul says, you know, there's that whole thing that when you own a field and you, and you, and you, and you pull the, the crops from the field and you pull the olives or the grapes from the vine and the ones that fall on the ground, those are supposed to be for the immigrant, the poor, the widow, and the orphan, but we pick them up because we worked hard for it. And Paul's like, but that's a disobedience to the law. Remember, there's a part where you're walking down the street, you know, and you see your, your, your neighbor's donkey caught up in the fence and you don't like that neighbor. This is literally in the law of Moses, by the way. And you don't like your neighbor, and you go, <laughs> good luck, donkey. You know, and you walk on. He says, that's disobeying the law. Because what does the law tell you you're supposed to do? Free the donkey. We don't do that. We say, made your bed, lie in it. Right? And Paul knows we can't get it right. And so Paul says, we're never going to get this right. Y'all have a nice morning. <laughs> like that, that's, the, that, that's the way when Hunter signs this, this is the way the text ends. And so what I realized is that there's a whole chapter that unfolds this. And so I want to talk for a moment. I want to do something that's going to seem very odd. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of stuff. Because one of the things, I have this professor, his name is Scott McKnight, and he said one of the best ways to read Romans is to read it backwards. Because Paul says all this hard stuff, 
And if you're just kind of reading through, you don't always know where Paul's going. And since we do live on the other side of the resurrection, like it'd be good just to start back. So we make sure Paul, like, give us hope and then we'll read backwards, right? Like, I need to understand where you're going, Paul, because right now I don't, I don't know what to make of it. See, here's what I'm saying. Paul uses the Hebrew scriptures 83 times in the Romans alone to give commentary to the Christian life. And I think that's important. So Paul realizes something. We are not going to be saved by keeping law, but the law has authority over what it means to be saved. Everybody say, to be saved. saved. Not to get saved, but to be saved. Everybody say, to be saved. Just one more time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be saved, to live saved. Paul knows that the work of God's grace isn't just to save us, from not having life with God. That's not the only point. Paul knows that the work of God's grace, which then saves us, grace alone, saves us to have life with God, that the work of God's grace is to make us more gracious. That when we are made holy, we are now free to learn what it means to live holy. When we're made righteous, we are now free to learn what it means to live righteous. We're free because we don't have to muscle and strain and strive to get God's approval. We already have God's approval. Now we learn to live as if we have God's approval because God knows us best and loves us most and loves us just as we are, not as we should be, but then wants to take that love and that grace that saves us and make us who we can be. So Paul doesn't just say, y'all say by grace alone through faith, you get to go to heaven when you die. Have a good day. Enjoy the Lord's chicken. That's not what Paul says. There's nowhere where Paul is going in Romans. He's saying, hey, all of that law that really real, that reveals to us what it means to love God and love neighbor that we can't keep actually still has a place in showing us what it means to love God and love neighbor, but it can't save us. But now it can show us what it means to be saved, which is why Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on these things. That didn't change in the resurrection. Jesus didn't come in resurrection and say, hey, just want to let y'all know what I said earlier doesn't apply. He blessed the world with chicken and he said, love God, love neighbor as you love yourself. So Paul writes about the law, Romans 15, 4. We're going to do a lot of reading here. Whatever was written in the past was written for our, say it, instruction. Instruction. You know what he's talking about when he says written in the past, right? He's talking about what? The law, the The Hebrew scriptures. He says, so all that that was written then is written for our what? It has a place in our lives so that we can have hope through endurance and through the Well, thank God, Paul, because Romans 3 wasn't very encouraging, right? Right? So the good news for y'all as you go through Romans is it gets encouraging. See, the law has a place. It can instruct us in the vision of God for the world, the vision of God that shows us what it means to be loved by God, to love God, and to love our neighbor as we what? Love ourselves. So then Paul writes in Romans 14. Is that Romans 14? Yep. Romans 14. Therefore, we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, by the way, he's about to quote the law, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God, so then each one of us will give an account to himself to God. So Paul is saying, look, the reality that we're still going to have a conversation with Jesus is going to happen. You're getting in. Say, I'm getting in. You're getting in, but you're going to have to have a conversation. 
And so he goes on and says, there's accountability in this grace for which we stand that we are saved because with salvation comes responsibility. And the responsibility is to what? Begins with an L, ends with an E. It's to love. That's why Paul said one chapter before 14, don't be in debt to anyone, which by the way is my favorite thing. I sent that to the IRS and said that my faith says that I'm not in debt to you. Do I have, you know, didn't that work? I thought, no. Except for the obligation, everybody say obligation. Man, come on, Paul. Obligation to what? To love each other. Whoever loves another person has what? Fulfilled the law. Notice Paul isn't saying, the law doesn't count now. Y'all know Paul's not saying that, right? Like he's literally not saying that. Love fulfills the law. The commands, and I like this. Paul's quoting now, he's going back to 10, right? He's going back to 10 commandments. The commands, do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't desire what others have. And any other, I like how Paul says it, and any other commands, like any other of the 600 commands that are there are all summed up in one word. You must, read it with me, come on. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't, here's the part that we don't like. We, we, can, we can get down with the love your neighbor as yourself, but then Paul's not letting us off the hook. He says, by the way, that means love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law. <sighs> the idea that love fulfills the law comes from what it means to live in the mercies of God, doesn't it? That if God would love and save a wretch like me, that if God would love and, and want to transform me, if God sees the best in me, if God knows me best and loves me most, and despite knowing me best, still loves me most, me. Like, I know me. And you, don't you know you? Like, isn't there things you don't want anybody to know about you because you know you? And God knows you, and God knows me, and God looks at me and says, you are so, you're such an idiot, but you're so cute. Like, right? Like, like he looks at us and says, you, you, I love you. You drive me nuts, but I adore you. And we say, God, do you really? He says, there's a bloodstained cross and empty tomb that tells you that. You couldn't do it, so I did it for you so that I could show you what it means to actually be human. Y'all realize that, right? That Jesus shows us what it means to actually be human. Here, peace with say all the time, I'm only human. And we, we have such a low view of humanity. And I mean, don't get us wrong, because we all, you know, we're all up a creek with the law. But Jesus came to be human to show us what it means to be the kind of human we were meant to be in Genesis chapter 1, and that we're going to be in Revelation chapter 22, and the human we can be by the power of the Spirit right now in Romans chapter 3. And Jesus looks at God, looks at us and says, there's a bloodstained cross and empty tomb that tells you that I love you this much. I love you that much, but I know you. And so we should, if we're sober-minded and honest and we, are, we have some kind of like spiritual integrity. Everybody say spiritual integrity. Spiritual. Then everybody say moral integrity. Come on. And then finally everybody say ethical integrity. So if as Christ followers we have spiritual, moral, and ethical integrity, then we should be able to look at that and say... Why God would love me, I don't know, but I know he does because there's a bloodstained cross and empty tomb. And then what he did is he gave me his spirit to change me from the inside out. And if it weren't for the mercy of God, I would be a wreck. And I don't mean for eternity. I mean like right now, a wreck. 
So Paul then says, well, okay, well, by, I mean, guys, by the, by the mercies of God, I encourage you to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice then. That's that, 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 that. That's holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You don't know what worship is? It's not a song or a sermon. It's a sacrificial life. Because that's the kind of thing that God can really move through in love. See, we don't have to climb on the altar for our salvation. Jesus did that on the cross. But we do have to present our lives on the altar, on the altar so we can learn what it means to live as we are. And so Paul goes on and says, this is important because this is what it means to discern the will of God. And man, I got to tell you, Romans 11, woo, the will of God is riches and wisdom and knowledge is so deep that they're mysterious as his judgments and they're hard to track his paths. But everyone, Romans 10, hasn't obeyed the good news. As Isaiah said, Lord has had faith in our message. Faith comes by, by listening, and listening by, comes by the means of Christ. I mean, if you really want to know the wisdom of God, then, then put yourselves out there to know the wisdom of God. Present your bodies a loving sacrifice, and when you present your bodies a living sacrifice, the Christ who saved you will become a Christ who's real to you. Because then you got to trust Him. Then you got to say, not by my strength, but by your strength. Then you got to say things like Paul said, before the grace of God, there go I, right? But you don't do that if all you do is go to church and eat the Lord's chicken. You do that when you actually have to love your neighbor that you don't like. Because the love of my neighbor I don't like requires Jesus. It requires the fruit of the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the unholy Fred doesn't work out too well. And then we go, well, then how do we do it? And Paul says, well, you, I mean, you have the Spirit. You have the Spirit. He says, there's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're free, so you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to earn anything because you're not going to lose anything. I said this Sunday in our church family, the Apostle Paul knew that what he was living for was always going to be greater than the circumstance he was living in. And because of that, he could live through the circumstances entirely different. So when people wanted to hurt Paul, Paul loved them anyway. How did he do that? Because he knew who he was because of whose he was. And he had the power of God in him to do it. He knew that he was obligated, as this says, not to live according to the flesh because he's been saved from that kind of effort, but to live according to the Spirit. And Paul was honest in Romans 7. He knew that it was going to be complicated. He knew that what he wanted to do was not what he did, and what he, what he needed to do was not what he did, and what he didn't want to do, he did anyway. And, and he knew the struggle. Y'all remember that, Romans 7, which is before Romans 8, which Romans 8 is the good news of Romans 7, because Romans 8 says, ha, you're okay, though, because the Spirit of God is in you, but you got to live like it. Does that make sense? you got to live like it. Paul's saying, we, that's hard. We can only live like it by the grace of God. But see, the problem is, is if the grace of God just becomes about our salvation so we get to go to heaven when we die, then we miss the grace of God that makes us more loving now. Because the work of God's grace is to make us more gracious. 
And some of you may be sitting here like I'm standing here and saying, I just can't, though. And Paul says in Romans 3, I know. But then Paul says, for the rest of Romans, but by God's Spirit inside of you, because of what Jesus has done for you, you actually can. And guess what's changed? Your motive. You don't have to earn anything with God. You just have to live as though you know Him. When my son was, um, was four years old, I'll close with the story. Uh, I, was, I was the quintessential dad. I played ball in high school and was wanting to play ba- baseball in, in college, and I wasn't good enough, and I was like, well, then I'm going to make my son good enough because, you know, sometimes we... <laughs> y'all know what I'm saying. Everyone of y'all like, been there, done that. So when he's four years old, I'm like, hey, buddy, let's play, let's, let's play catch. He's left-handed, so I bought him a left-handed glove, and I didn't buy him the glove from Walmart. I bought him the glove from the special section, you know, signature section at Dick's Sporting Good. I'm still making payments on that glove. I bought that glove, and I bought him a bat, and I'm like, same thing, still making payments on the bat. And, 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 and we didn't even sign him up for T-ball. I bought him a bat bag because I wanted him to look good. So we get out there, and we get the glove on, and we're ready to throw, and I throw the ball to him, and it just, I mean, it just whiffs right on by him. And I'm talking, when I say throw the ball, I mean... Throw the ball. I don't mean throw the ball. I mean throw the ball. He gets it. I said, pick it up, throw it. He picks it up, and he throws it this way. And I'm like, all right, you know, I'll give him another ball. He throws, misses it, picks it up, throws it that way. And this happens the whole time. Finally, I'm just done. I'm like, yeah, you, you know, you're not my kid, you know. <laughs> so I keep working on this, and nothing gets better. So I buy him a tee, put a ball on a tee. He never hits. Look, my son was so bad, he couldn't even hit the tee. All right, like, like, he knows, by the way, he knows I tell this story. I just want to be very clear. I want to be very clear. Son, you're really better than I'm making you out there. He, he knows, he knows I tell the story. And so we do this, and he's terrible. So we sign him up, but it's T-ball, it's game day. We're, y'all, y'all have ever gone through, y'all walked over Whisk, right? You know how, like, when you walk Whisk, like, he's got his bat bag on, he's got his, his uniform on, he looks like a million bucks because my philosophy is if he's going to stink, he's going to look good doing it, right? So, so he's looking good, and we're walking over. This is, you know, dad's first baseball game, Ian's first baseball game, mom's first baseball game. You know, you're walking over Whisk, and you see, and, you, and the heel crests, and it's like the ball fields. The angels of God come down. It's just beautiful. Oh, right, it's just beautiful. And he sees it, and then he stops. He freezes. And the bat bag falls off his shoulders and drops to the ground. And I tell Allison, I'm like, why don't you go ahead? And so I go to Ian, and I... And I get on my knee, look him in the eye, and I say, what's wrong, buddy? He says, I don't want to go. I said, why don't you want to go? I don't want to go. I said, why don't you want to go? He says, what if I mess up? And I was like, <laughs> you, you will. <laughs> he said, well, then I don't want to go. He said, I'm going to mess up. He said, what if they laugh at me? And I said, <laughs> they might. Man, I was thinking to myself, have you seen yourself play? <laughs> He's like, I don't want to go. I said, who, lo- who what's, your, what's your name? He said, Ian. I said, Ian what? Ian Ligon? I said, no, no, what's your whole name? He said, Ian James Ligon. Ian means graciousness of God. James is Allison's deceased father. Ligon's my name. I said, who loves you? 
He said, Mama. I was like, what the hell? I was like. <laughs> I said, who else? He said, you? I said, who am I, Daddy? I said, who else loves you? Now, Trinitarian theology issues aside, Hunter. He said, God. I said, who else? He said, Jesus. I said, you know what that means, son? I said, no. I said, you have nothing to prove. You're going to walk on that field in James Ligon, loved by mommy, daddy, God, and Jesus. You're going to play the game, and you're going to get off that field in James Ligon, loved by mommy, daddy, Jesus, God, and Jesus. Nothing's going to change. You have nothing to prove. I said, so what's your name? He said, Ian James Ligon. I said, who loves you? I said, mommy, daddy, God, Jesus. I said, what does that mean? I have nothing to prove. And we said that. What's your name? Ian James Ligon. And it felt like remember the Titans for a moment. You know what I Like seeing where they start getting all like, ah! And he went out there and he played the worst t-ball game I've ever seen. <laughs> it was all season long. But from that moment on at the age of four, I have prayed over my son and with my son. God, help me to remember I have nothing to prove because I have nothing to lose. And I have nothing to fear because I'm loved by you and that's enough. And so when Paul says, we are all condemned under this law, Paul gets us to the place and he says, but you know what? Because Jesus did what we couldn't do, we have nothing to prove because we have nothing to lose. And if we have nothing to lose, we have nothing to fear. So we can love because we're loved by God. And if we really think about that, that is enough. Let's pray. God, your love is, I mean, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. We are so conditioned to love with condition that it is sometimes hard for us to conceive of a love without. We think we are so smart. We think we are so intelligent. We think we are so well-skilled and studied and strong. And yet the law reveals to us that we are not those things. Not nearly like we think we are because you're the standard of those things and we are just even our best day even our best wisdom is foolishness to you, as Paul would later say. And that doesn't humble us like it should. So we are grateful that in your mercy and grace, you remind us in Romans that our best wisdom is your foolishness. Our best love is your least love. Our best act of kindness doesn't match even your least act of kindness until you give us your spirit to teach us what it all means. Until you give us your spirit to produce in us that which we cannot muster up ourselves. And you do this, God, because you love us. 
And so we have nothing to prove to you because you've proven it in Christ. We have nothing we can lose because we can never lose your love. And we have nothing to fear because, as Scripture says, perfect love has cast out that fear. So God, now teach us as your men, as your sons, as the princes of your kingdom, what it means to live as though we have nothing to prove, lose, or fear because we are loved by you and that's enough. Teach us that the work of grace that saves us is the same grace that can make us more gracious so that when we do love, people will see us and know us by your love. So Father... May your spirit empower us and convict each one of us wherever we are and remind us that we are seen by you, known by you, and loved by you. And May that love, by the power of your spirit, transform us from the inside out and turn us into who we can be because of who you believe we ought to be, because of who Jesus is as Lord and King. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash mensbreakfast. I hope you'll join us again for our next installment in our study of the Book of Romans. Until then, know that you have been set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless and have a great week.